specifically in terms of emotional eating, it's really important for people to understand that difficult emotions, stress, anger, sadness, literally hijacks our hunger hormones to kind of shift them in the way that promotes hunger. And I think it's important to say that because when you understand like, wow, my body is literally doing this, then you can uh, meet yourself in a place or from a place of self-compassion and address what that physiologically is doing to you. Welcome to the Mind Your Body Show, where you'll learn how to get your mind right so that your body will follow. I'm Trudy Stone, certified culinary nutritionist, TV guest expert, and author. After self-hacking my mind and body to lose 30 pounds, I now help busy, overwhelmed women use stress as their superpower so that they can rise above it and become more calm, resilient, and physically fit. Each week, not only will you learn nutrition and stress management habits, you'll also learn about the power of food to enhance your mental and physical well-being and how to overcome your battles with living a healthier lifestyle. The secret to eating healthier, improving your mood, and increasing your energy are not only about what you put in your stomach, it's also about what's going on in your brain. So congratulations on showing up. I promise to support you on your health journey with every single episode. Let's begin. It is time to address your true hunger. Hunger is emotional, hunger is spiritual, and hunger is universal. Overweight or not, our relationship with food is symbolic of our relationship with ourselves, and our hunger for food is symbolic of a deeper hunger that seeks to be understood. We're hungry for connection, for belonging, for understanding, and for meaning. And that's why I'm so excited to invite my very special guest to this week's Mind Your Body show, Dr. Adrian Udeem. Dr. Udeem is an internist who specializes in medical weight loss and clinical nutrition. Her mission is to transform the weight loss narrative to one that is both empowering and compassionate, inspiring people to live more physically and emotionally fulfilling lives. She holds multiple board certifications awarded by the American Board of Internal Medicine, the National Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists, and the American Board of Obesity Medicine. She is also a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Dr. Udeem currently sees patients in her private practice in Beverly Hills. She is the author of the text, Clinician's Guide to the Treatment of Obesity, and her new book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out, which explores the emotional and spiritual hungers that present as a hunger for food validating universal experiences through story and science. She also hosts the Health Bite podcast and is founder of Dell Nutrition, a complete line of nutritional supplements made with functional nutrients to promote health and well-being. Dr. Udeem is a national speaker sought after by the media and has been featured on The Doctors, Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, ABC News, Inside Edition, National Public Radio, among other news outlets. Welcome to the Mind Your Body show, Dr. Adrian. How are you today? Hi there, Trudy. It's so nice to be here. So nice to be with you. It's so great to have you. I am so excited to talk to you about so many different things <laughs> because you're amazing. And I want my audience to see and to hear how amazing you are as well. But if someone hasn't heard about you or if this is their first introduction to you, can you just kind of give us a little bit of a background about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a physician based in Los Angeles. I specialize in nutrition and weight loss. And I, um, I, my strategy is really actionable and compassionate weight loss. Um, I know that weight is a very 
difficult situation, particularly right now uh, in terms of the pandemic and um, the way in the ways I should say in which we use food to soothe and to comfort. And so I really try and find that balance between um, speaking about the health and kind of the practical strategies and the practical implications while really holding close the emotional, spiritual piece of hunger, which is so interconnected, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about emotional eating. You know, what is emotional eating and why do we happen to do it at some level? You know, it's interesting because we have so many perceptions, misperceptions about emotional eating, and we have so much bias around it and shame. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that emotional eating is literally hardwired in our neurobiology. So if you think about it, you know, from the very beginning, um, when, when we are birthed, there is a hormone called oxytocin, right? Mm-hmm. And oxytocin is the hormone that propels us out of the uterus. It allows us to be born. It is also the hormone that primes the mother's body for food. So it allows the mom to to make breast milk in response to the baby and to the baby's cries. It's also the very same hormone that uh, facilitates that and fosters that love and interconnection between mother and baby. And we even release oxytocin when we pet our puppies (laughs) and so do our dogs. So even from that very, very beginning, you can see how like food and emotion, food and love are so interconnected in our biology. Of course, it's a huge part of our culture, our upbringing, our family relations. And then I think specifically in terms of emotional eating, it's really important for people to understand that difficult emotions, stress, anger, sadness, literally hijacks our hunger hormones to kind of shift them in the way that promotes hunger. And I think it's important to say that because when you understand like, wow, my body is literally doing this, then you can uh, meet yourself in a place or from a place of self-compassion and address what that physiologically is doing to you. Mm, so true. And, you know, when you talk about emotional eating, you're right. It's not just about, you know, when we eat when we're upset or we eat when we're sad. I know I have some clients that are going through the pandemic alone. So they're, you know, really lonely right now and they're turning to food for comfort. But there's also other things as well. And I think you cover this in your book. Um, you know, just it, there could be different events or different memories that we associate with certain foods, right? Like for my grandparents, like I associate certain foods with them because I used to go to Jamaica and visit them all the time. And my grandma would make me a certain cake. So now whenever I see that cake, like I think of my grandmother, right? And I want to eat it. So sometimes, you know, emotional eating is just the memories that we tie to particular foods as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and then the question becomes then how do we balance that, right? How do we balance that uh, tradition, uh, the beauty in that, you know, the reminder of, of your grandmother's uh, show of love for you in cooking and nourishing you. And how do we balance that with um, love for ourselves and nourishing in our, ourselves in a way that really serves us as opposed to a way that can be defeating? Mm, I like that. You know, eating certain foods, that is a way to show love to ourselves. So I love that. I love that you said that. 
So Dr. Adrian, as a physician, you prescribe medication. So why do you say that pills and supplements will be ineffective if you don't address true hunger? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I, like I said, I like to be practical, actionable, and also empathetic, compassionate. And so on one end, you know, there are tools and strategies that are helpful. There are FDA approved, at least, you know, here and, and in Canada as well, but medications that are approved for our use. There are evidence-based strategies and dietary plans that help, right, to satiate you in the proper ways. But at the end of the day, our hunger is so much more than just appetite, right? If it were just a matter of that hunger signal, that physiologic need for food turning on and off, then this would be much easier to address. But it isn't. It is so tied in in emotion. And the way that I describe it in the book Hungry for More is the way that it's kind of demonstrated itself in my practice, which is in every single case, um, we identify an underlying hunger. So if you're eating for a reason other than food, right, or I'm sorry, uh, physiologic hunger, what is it that you're truly hungry for? What is it that you're longing? What are you searching for? And you use the word invitation before we started speaking formally. And that's exactly it. Because if we can use it as an invitation to identify what our need really or needs really are, then it can be very powerful. And I'll give you an example. So the first chapter in the book is hungry for perfection. And the reason why I put that first is because Hello, we're like all plagued by it on some level, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you don't have to be a perfectionist or a professional to have um, features of perfectionism, which is, you know, setting yourself up to meet unattainable goals. So by definition, perfection is a goal that doesn't exist, that we cannot reach. And so if you're setting yourself up for an unattainable goal, then you're setting yourself up for failure. And so understanding that, whether you're talking about weight loss or um, a relationship or getting a degree or parenting, right? Whatever you're talking about, if you can hold yourself with self-compassion in those moments that you're imperfect, as opposed to just striving for perfection, then you're much more likely to get up in those in those moments, dust yourself off and get back in the game, as opposed to if you continue to badger yourself, right? Like, why did I do that? And I shouldn't have and I could have and all yeah. those things you, in fact, sabotage. And the studies show this, that people who catastrophize things, right, like really right. Um, make setbacks so personal and so big in their own minds, mm -hmm. they are less able to get back in there. Whereas if you can minimize it, uh, dismiss it to some degree, um, then you're much more likely to, you know, stay the course. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love what you said there. There's just so much that I want to unpack. Um, recently, I did a TV segment here in Canada, and I was talking about, you know, healthy habits for the new year. 
And I think at the start of the new year, we have the best of intentions and we want to do all the things and we're going to have the green smoothie every day. We're going to have the salad every day. And we make all these changes at once. And we have all these goals that are unattainable that you didn't eat salads, you know, even once a week before, but now you want to eat it five days a week. And that's great that you have that goal, but I think it's important that we break those things down into even micro goals and to just, you know, do those things step by step. And I think a lot of people overlook that as well. So I'm glad that you talked about that. Yeah, small, small changes done consistently are impactful. Mm -hmm. And we forget that we, we like the sexy big stuff. We don't um, give as much um, respect to the small changes and and how that can really affect us. But it's true, the small steps are what are impactful. And the science also shows that, the data shows that, that when you try and engage in too much at once, that you are you are setting yourself up for failure. Besides the fact that, let's face it, you don't need to eat a salad you know, every meal, every day in order right. to be effective, right? Like who said that that was the way? Right. Yeah, I agree 110%. And you know, with me, um, I lost 30 pounds like eight years ago now. And where I started was my coffee, because I knew I was dumping like six packs of sugar into my coffee each and every day. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to add anything else until I get this part down. Once I get this part down, and I minimize the amount of sugar in my coffee, then I'll add on the next thing and then the next thing. And really, that's that's how I started. Because those small wins are so important, because that's what gives us momentum. Because sometimes we always say to ourselves, we ask ourselves, how can I get motivated to make these changes or eat healthier when really it's those small wins that give us that momentum and help to propel us to move forward? Right. I mean, if we don't acknowledge our wins, then, you know, how are we going to persevere? I always think about it as, you know, I have three children, like think about little kids, right? How do you get them to keep doing the same things over and over again? How do you get them to do the good things? Um, it's by encouraging them, celebrating those wins. And at the end of the day, our psyches are the psyche of small children. We have to nourish that aspect of ourselves and pat ourselves on the shoulder when appropriate um, so that we can foster and cultivate those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I want to say is, you know, it, in response to your, your sugar packets, right? You know, we always see these things in terms of weight, right? Mm-hmm. But I wonder if, if you, and I imagine you did this, when we slow down enough to say, hmm, I wonder what happens in the morning when I drink a big cup of coffee um, on an empty stomach, or maybe we pair it with something that we got from the coffee shop that's also full of sugar. And then we add all these packets of sugar to that what happens? So of course, in that moment, we're like energized, jolted, dopamine is skyrocketing, we feel good. But then what happens 30, 60, 90 minutes later, right? We crash, we're lethargic, we're irritable. And that's physiologic too. sugar levels go up, insulin levels go up, and then they both plummet. And that plummeting of blood sugar is what prompts that irritability that people, if we notice, we notice we experience when we consume foods like that on the regular. Mm -hmm. So the other piece is um, aligning with, with that feeling, right? Not so much the numbers on the scale, because I bet you, you got rid of the sugar packets, you jumped on the scale the second day or the third day, and you didn't lose any weight and you right? That's what we do. And it's it's not going to happen so quickly. (laughs) But 
you can align with, well, how did I feel? How did I feel today? How did, you know, how did my body respond to eliminating that trigger for my diet? Mm -hmm. And then when you align with that feeling, that, that wanting to be well, the weight just comes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know that from experience with my patients, but of course I know that from personal experience too, you know, Mm -hmm. three kids, gaining 30 pounds three times and then having to lose it, not to mention, you know, childhood stuff, right? We all have right. it. So um, I think even on a personal level, I've, I've very much experienced that. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Adrian, what you said there is so important because you're right. That is exactly what I realized when I was, you know, cutting back the sugar in my coffee. And I realized that I wanted to eat how I wanted to feel. Because I was so busy at that time in my life, I was planning my wedding and doing so many different things. And I kept turning to these processed foods and junk foods. And these foods didn't have life. So how could I expect those foods to give me life and give me the energy that I needed to be able to keep up with my demanding schedule and all of those things. So I decided I was going to eat how I wanted to feel like I wanted more energy. So I was going to eat the foods that supported that. And when I did make those changes, yes, the weight came off. But you know, what surprised me even more was how my focus improved, how my memory improved, how my mood improved, just my energy levels. And I was like, wow, I'm like, it's not just about weight loss. It's really about how you feel, right? So it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually the, you know, the, the kind of line of conversation that I always have is what's good for your weight is good for your mood is good for your productivity is good for cognitive health. Actually, this trilogy that you're describing is are very three things that I wrote in a medium article that I published <laughs> yesterday. Those three things, awesome. mood, productivity, and cognitive health. Right. So yeah, stick to the things that you truly value. I think it's also important, Trudy, to mention like what happens when people or when we, I mean, I I am a self-proclaimed lover of sour gummy everything. Okay, obsessed with sour gummy things. And so I'll have them once in a while. But let's just go through what happens. So when we become habitual in some of these behaviors, so I don't keep sour gummy worms in my house, because I don't want to go to the pantry every day. But let's say during the pandemic, I slided a little on that rule. And it became a thing. Every night while I was watching Netflix, I had some sour gummy worms. So what happens over time? Well, we know that in the moment when we have that sugary food or highly palatable, whether it's sugar or fat, what have you, we get a a rise of dopamine. We get a dopamine hit. And so we keep going back for that hit. Of course, it feels good in the moment. But dopamine has a way of like hijacking us because over time, it requires more and more of that palatable food in order to get that emotional payoff. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer three gummy worms. Now it's six next month, maybe it's half a package. And so we have to be, be aware of that. And again, I like to describe and share the science because I feel like if we know what's happening in our bodies, in our brains, then we can intervene in an, in an educated way. Right. Um, and a compassionate way, because this is not a moral failing. The fact that you love gummy worms, this is what your brain is processing. Oh yeah. Don't let, don't get me get started on that one. (laughs) 
I'm sure you know all about the salt, sugar, fat book and all of that stuff and what companies do to foods and how they engineer yeah. in specific ways. So yeah, no, I, I hear you 110% on that one, Dr. Adrian. Do you feel like your stress levels are constantly on the rise? You're not alone. Feeling stressed is a perfectly normal feeling, but it can sometimes feel like you're taking on the world without the strength to get back up. In my free Foods That Soothe ebook, you'll discover some key vitamins, nutrients, and recipes that may help you to improve your mood as well as to reduce your stress. I know how it feels to be overwhelmed, so I wrote this resource with you in mind. No matter how stressed you are, there is always a way to find relief. This book doesn't take more than 10 minutes to read. You can even read it on your phone or on your tablet. You can also grab the free download over at trudyestone.com forward slash foods that soothe. So I want to talk about like how we sabotage ourselves. Like what are some of the most common ways we sabotage ourselves like weight related or otherwise? I mean, I think, like I said, the perfectionism is a big one, right? And I, and I want to bring it up again, because I think we don't realize the ways in which it shows up. And so specifically with weight, think about the times when you don't get the weight loss that you expected. And notice what happens in that moment. Often that is a moment of sabotage because we are so distressed by our unmet expectations that we throw in the towel. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is a very common one. Um, in terms of other ways of, of sabotage is also how we manage setbacks, right? So let's say you have a weekend in Vegas or, you know, a big celebratory meal, Um, or you go away for a month during the summer where you're not necessarily cooking for yourself or very um, mindful of how you're eating. Invariably, people will experience weight gain over time, right? Weight comes, weight goes. How do we manage that setback, right? If we regained five, 10, whatever, it doesn't matter, pounds. And again, we make we catastrophize it, then we're much more likely to go on and gain another five, another 10, another 15. Whereas if we can just meet ourselves where we are with self-acceptance, then we are much less likely to sabotage. Mm-hmm. And I mean I think there's a million ways, but but I'm going to share just one more that I that comes to mind that is really common. Yes, please. And that's how we label ourselves. Um, you know, so I wrote this book, Hungry for More, and I went to a few writing conferences before in the Redwoods in Northern California. Beautiful if you haven't gone. Mm-hmm. And you must. Yeah. And at one of these conferences, um, at the time I wasn't a published writer, but there were all these writers in the room. And so the, the person who was running the conference said, So how many writers are are here? And like nobody raised their hand. And then she was like, well, how many of you are writing a book? And then everybody <laughs> raised their hand. And it's like, why, you know, we, we either don't allow ourselves that label or we label ourselves. I'm not a writer. I'm not a runner. I'm not a, my entire family is obese. I'm, I'm never going to be thin. Uh, you know, I can't do this because I haven't even tried these Labels are self-limiting beliefs that keep us in a box. And 
I describe in uh, Hungry for More a personal story of running in our, you know, in physical education in PE in high school and how it was atrocious. It would take me 14 minutes, 16 minutes to run a mile. I mean, it was pathetic. Me too. So much so. <laughs> yeah. So you can relate. Trauma from that too, Dr. Adrian. <laughs> so much so that the coach finally was like, you know what, girl? <laughs> like, why don't you just grade papers? Cause you, I mean, that's how bad it was. And then 20 years later, for many reasons that I, I describe in story form, I end up running the LA Marathon. Oh, how, how does somebody who, who can't even run a mile in 16 minutes, make it through a marathon? And it's really just permission, right? I, I dared to imagine that I was a runner. And therefore I was. Mm -hmm. But if we keep ourselves in that box of like, oh, I'm this, that and the other, and never dare to imagine anything different, um, then that is the biggest form of sabotage that I can think of. Mm, you know, you're so right about that. You know, we have to be so careful of the things that we say to ourselves because, you know, a thought will lead to a certain feeling that we have. And then a feeling will lead to an action or some, in some cases, even inaction. So it's so important what we tell ourselves. Like, even if we say like, let's say we plan to work out the next day and then we don't work out. We're like, oh, we say to ourselves, I'm such a lazy person. Like if you say stuff to yourself, then that's what you're going to bring forth into your life, right? So we have to be so careful about those words that we say to ourselves because our body is listening. Yes. And we all do it. Yeah. It's also an important point. People, when we talk about this, people will say things like, well, when does it stop? And the truth is it never stops. It's just a practice of, of becoming aware of those moments and trying to gently nudge ourselves otherwise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Dr. Adrian, what's one of the most important things that you've learned in your life that you would say it could be anything. Wowzers. <laughs> I know that's a big one. It's a big one. I mean, I would say to like, trust my gut, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think there's a lot of times when things don't feel right. And, and we try and like, shove a square peg into a round hole um, or something feels right. You know, we have this idea of wanting to do something like for me, it was, you know, leaving a, a very kind of illustrious um, uh, job, not profession, because I'm still in the work, but position, let's say, you know, a big title at a, at a very uh, illustrious institution and being afraid even though I knew in my gut it was the right thing to do. So it took me years to do it, which is okay. Sometimes it takes years for us to come to ourselves. But I think the point is that um, we shouldn't be afraid to trust that intuition um, because it's there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so that I think is a powerful lesson that, that I have learned. Oh, so true. And I'm so I'm sure that you inspire so many women just by saying that, because I'm sure there's a lot of people right now, especially with this pandemic and, you know, this hybrid working style that are maybe even thinking about leaving their jobs right now. So you might have just inspired somebody to go with their gut and to take the leap. Permission <laughs> to pivot, right? <laughs> right. Permission to pivot. So Dr. Adrian, you've mentioned that you've you know lost weight and kind of gained it back throughout the years, like most women do, even including myself. You know, what are some of the best resources that have helped you along the way? In terms of strategies for weight loss or weight maintenance or yeah, both, both. 
So, you know, again, I think it's a combination of um, mindset, right, which is a lot of what we've talked about, mm-hmm. um, and also practical strategies. Um, I would say that in terms of practical strategies, um, you know, exercise is something that I don't equate with weight loss. It actually doesn't help people lose weight, really. It's really more of, of um weight maintenance, when you look at this clinical studies, it helps with maintenance more than weight loss. But I think exercise is more of a spiritual outlet. It enables you to get out of your head, out of those thoughts, and into your body. It allows us to deal with difficult emotions, ruminations, anxiety, the data is very clear, that it helps with all of those things. So exercise is an outlet for me, that Um, Again, it may not in terms of calorie burnage, Mm -hmm. necessarily equate to weight loss, but it does through the back door, because when I soothe through movement, then I'm less likely to soothe through food. Mm -hmm. I also think that honoring our hunger is important. So on one hand, we don't want to eat past our hunger, but we also want to address our hunger. And so sometimes when people want to lose weight, they think the strategy should be starvation, which dysregulates our hunger. And if anything, makes us eat more because now we're behind the eight ball, right? Like how many times have you left the house without grabbing something and gone the whole day without eating? What happens to us that night? We're insatiable, right? Right. Right. And so in order to do that, in order to honor our hunger, and also to move our bodies, then we have to make that part of our lives a priority. I think we all know that getting a degree takes time, right? We need to put time aside to like study for the test. Mm -hmm. We all know that cultivating a relationship with our partners takes time, like we'll put time out to to do date night or, you know, talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. But for some reason, We've forgotten that taking care of ourselves takes time, right? We want everything to be expedient. We want food to be ready-made. We want, uh, you know, and I'm all for convenience. I mean, I even created protein bars to help people with nutrition on the go, but it's not all or nothing, right? At the end of the day, we need to take time to care for ourselves or we won't be well. Mm -hmm. And so that's also a mindset, but it's also a practical strategy. Because if you put that time aside for yourself, then you're much more likely to sustain those behaviors that that are aligned with your goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so true. So Dr. Adrian, you have a book out and it's called Hungry for More. So can you tell us a little bit more about the book and what inspired you to write it? Yes. I mean, I love this book. Can I just say that I love it? And the reason is um, that it's a collection of stories that was inspired by my patients. And so when, you know, sitting in this position where people talk to you, uh, you're, you're in this privileged position of hearing people's stories. And I imagine you get the same experience. You're able to kind of see the, that line that connects us all, you know, the universality of it all. And knowing that we're all the same, we have the same 
uh, fears, the same struggles, the same longing, the same joy, the same desire. And I really benefited from that knowing. My patients sharing with me really helped me realize our common humanity. But it occurred to me that they didn't get that benefit, right? It's not like in a session or in a consultation, you could be like, well, girl, let me tell you about me. Or, let me tell you about Trudy. <laughs> right? like, exactly. But, but knowing, right, hearing other people's stories um, and being vulnerable helps connect us all and helps us have the courage to meet our own challenges. And so this book um, was really like a love letter to my patients and to people out there who, who are struggling with a hunger, which we all are. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that we're all the same, whether you're, um, you know, the president of the United States or Canada, or you're Madonna, my personal idol as a child, or, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever, we are all the same. And I described phrase and I described the science behind it to validate people in, um, not being ashamed of their hunger. Mm, I love that. And it is a beautiful book. I had a hard time putting it down when I was reading it yesterday. So please make sure everybody to grab Dr. Adrian's book. There will be a link in the show notes for you guys to check that out. So Dr. Adrian, the last couple of years, I mean, I don't have to say this, have been really, really challenging. And a lot of people have experienced some sort of upheaval. So what's the biggest surprise that you've had in the last couple of years during the pandemic and why? Um, I will say a a big challenge, maybe a challenge for me, um, has been, or was, has been, continues to be, um, juggling all of the pieces, you know, the, the shift in our routines and the shift in our flow, our workflow, our life flow was really challenging in terms of how do you manage the kids? How do you manage the work? How do you manage the dishes? How do you, you know? So that was very much a challenge. I think what was also a challenge was giving myself permission to feel distress Mm -hmm. because I think if you're in a privileged position where um, nobody close to you has died, for example, and I know a lot of people out there, are not in that position, or you haven't suffered major financial, um, you know, catastrophe, um, you feel like you have no reason to complain, or you have no reason to be upset. Uh, And I think we all have our reasons. And um, the level of challenge does not dismiss, you know, one person versus another, we all have our challenges in our own ways. And that was a shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think one that a lot of people I grapple with. Yeah. You know, and and I would agree with that too. Like I experienced those same sort of emotions as well, like emotions of being distressed and even just a lot of things that was going on, um, you know, but um, I think that the biggest thing that I learned was that I could, I run my own practice so I could take a step back if I wanted to. And that's exactly what I did. Um, things got really, really busy and busy is good. Don't, you know, I shouldn't complain. Like busy is good. It's great to have all the clients and do all of the things, but I found myself just feeling or approaching burnout and I didn't want to get to burnout. So I decided to take a step back, 
for a couple of months for my practice, just to make sure that I was healing myself so that I could be in a position to serve. And I'm so glad that I did that. And I learned so many things about myself in that process as well, in terms of, you know, setting up certain systems in place in my business. So things could run without me when I wasn't, you know, available, just even simple things like that. Um, And I've actually implemented some things now where I'm just, I actually have hard time built into my calendar to take time for out for myself, to take care of myself. And I never did that before. I would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing through. So I think sometimes if we just stop and listen to what it is that we need, we'll be really surprised at what comes up for us. And I know that I wasn't stopping to do that. So I hope that that helps somebody out there as well. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. It it goes back to giving yourself permission, right? And you can either even do that uh, compassionate act in a very practical way by, you know, I, you can see my, I have my calendar myself right here in front of me, but, you know, scheduling it in. And sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to literally schedule it in so that you force yourself to take that time. Um, But then hopefully when you do, you realize the benefits. Mm -hmm. Oh, so true. So Dr. Adrian, I have a question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your favorite way to take care of your mind and your body? Mm, I love that. So I am a huge fan of journaling. If it were up to me, it would be me, my journal, my puppy and my bed, like 24 seven. Love it. (laughs) Um, And I've been writing in a journal since my third grade teacher you know, gave us one when I was six, seven years old, and I never stopped. So that is definitely a way for me to take care of my mind, to process to brain dump, like I like to call it, that's what I, you know, dump all the ruminations so that I don't have to carry it in my own head. Absolutely. Um, And my favorite way to take care of my body is, is through physical activity. Um, I'm not always motivated to do it. It's, you know, motivation, Uh, comes in the doing, not in the thinking, but I'm always happy on the other side of it. Um, And so I, I make a practice, a point to do it, you know, as regularly daily as possible, just as a, as a way of self-care. Yeah. And I love that you said that too, because I think a lot of times when we think about exercise, we think of it a as torture. We think it's something we have to do. We feel like we don't have enough time to do it. You know, and what I would say to people is, what can you do with the time that you have, right? And you're not going to regret exercise. You're always going to feel great afterwards. So, you know, just try to find like a few moments to in your day to just get some sort of movement in, right? You know, the studies show that even seven minutes of exercise a day or activity a day um, has been shown to prolong life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seven minutes. So it doesn't take a lot. And in those seven minutes, you get a dopamine hit, your endorphins are running. Um, When we do vigorous activity, actually, it's been shown that that activity, like the the stuff we hated when we were in high school, the panting when we had to run, the sweating, the panting, right? The legs chafing, whatever it is. (laughs) But that vigorous, right? That vigorous activity actually has been shown to help when you can endure physical, quote, stress or vigor, it makes you more capable of tolerating emotional distress and discomfort. And so, again, that that exertion can be seen as a gift, as an opportunity to then permeate other aspects of our lives. Right, right. So, Dr. Adrian, if people want to learn more about you, they want to follow you, they want to immerse everything, Dr. Adrian, where can they find you? 
Well, I have a website, dradrianudim.com, and there you can find all the resources, including the book, including my blog, signing up for my newsletter. I actually am such a huge fan of writing that I have a 30-day journaling course um, to help with self-discovery and finding your hunger. So that's available there. I'm also on Dr. Adrian Udim on Instagram, where I put my daily musings. So if people want to reach out, um, and I do, I do answer my own DMs and my email that can be found on my website. So, so feel free to shoot me a message there. Awesome. And you have a podcast as well, right? I do. I have a podcast called Health Bite, and uh, in which I like to give short, actionable bites, small bites, right, to our initial point early in the conversation towards mental, emotional, and physical well-being. And I do encourage people to take a look at the book. I think um, the response has been so positive. And I think the reason is really in that validation and comfort that we all seek. And I hope it'll be of, of benefit to your listeners. And I think the timing is perfect too, Dr. Adrian, for meeting people where they're at in their lives and what they're experiencing and what they're going through right now. So thank you so much for writing this amazing book. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. It's been so great to have you on the podcast, Dr. Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Mind Your Body Show. I hope that you learned something new to help you transform your life and your body. For more after the show, make sure to head over to TrudyEstone.com. That's where you'll find all of the show notes. Also make sure to head over to iTunes to subscribe and leave us a rating to let us know what you thought about the episode. And remember, get your mind right and your body will follow. Thanks for tuning in.